welcome. This is part two of the section on getting hold of bodies, the genesis of the Anatomy Act of 1832, and the traffic of corpses to the medical schools. There's a part one of this which really discusses the genesis of the Murder Act and the prelude to this Anatomy Act, the nature of the so-called Tyburn uh, riots. The disaster that became the Burke and Hare scandal was a major stimulus for change. The origin of the term burking in its literal interpretation is the notion that someone might be smothered and their body bartered for its value to an anatomist. But it's become synonymous with the method by which people can suppress or evade an inconvenient question or fact. That aside, um, the whole affair was the inspiration for Robert Louis Stevenson's story, The Body Snatcher. And although often told uh, it's a tale of such notoriety and such impact on the performance of dissection that it deserves a brief retelling here. Um, Stevenson's book actually was first published in the Paul Moore Christmas Extra in December 1884, for those interested. The careers, such as they were, of the Irish-born Burke and Hare had not indeed even started with murder, but rather with an opportunity where an old man had died whilst living in Mrs Hare's lodging house, and where with some ease both men asking for simple directions in Surgeon Square were guided to the school of Dr uh, Robert Knox. Um, there was, I might say, nothing in particular to single these men out as mass murderers. William Burke, 1792 to 1829, was born in Ernie near Stravance in the west of County Tyrone, part of the province of Ulster in Northern Ireland. And William Hare, uh, born about 1792 and we're not sure when he died, was born either in uh, Pontypass near Newry in County Armagh or in Derry. And their accomplices were Burke's mistress, Helen MacDougall, and Hare's wife, Margaret Laird. And according to Burke's later testimony, they had initially asked for directions to Professor Monroe, who was Edinburgh, as we know, Edinburgh's most prominent anatomist and founder of the Edinburgh Medical School. But a student directed them instead to Surgeon Square and Dr Knox, where they sold the body for £7.10. shillings. It is wonderful, I think, to speculate on what Monroe would have done and how history would have changed were he positioned in uh, Knox's shoes. It wasn't a leap, really, of moral faith for Birkenhead to find another lodger who, upon falling ill at the lodging house and after plying him with whisky, they then smothered to death. The simple transition from makeshift body snatchers to killers made, they were now free to prey upon the city's frail and incapacitated, even surprising them both that no one had ever thought of this scheme before. Twelve more women, two handicapped young men and another old man would be their victims, all aided by the offer of sedating alcohol designed to subdue them for the new trade. 
to list them, I think, is interesting. The 16 Birkenhair murders, also called the Westport murders, were committed in Edinburgh over a 10-month period. And within the limitations of the available records, their victims included uh, Donald, an army pensioner who was sold for £7.10 shillings, Joseph, who was a miller for £10, Abigail Simpson from Gilmerton, who was a salt seller for £10, a drunken female lodger for £10, an English male lodger from Cheshire for £10, Mary or perhaps Margaret Haldane, a prostitute for possibly about £8, Effie, a cinder gatherer for £10, an Irish woman from Glasgow for £8, the Glasgow woman's son or perhaps grandson for £8, a female lodger for an unknown amount, a drunken woman in Westport for £10, Mary Patterson, also known as Mary Mitchell, for £8. Mrs Hostler, a washerwoman, for £8. Anne McDougall from Falkirk, the cousin of Helen McDougall, for £10. James Wilson, a simpleton, for £10. And Mary Doherty, an Irish beggar woman, also known as Marjorie Campbell. Nine of the murdered were killed in Hare's house, with four killed in Burke's house. It was uh, simple, premeditated and quite lucrative, but their downfall would not be because of the proclivity of the trade elsewhere, but rather because of carelessness and suspicion when Burke had invited an itinerant Mary Doherty to his lodging house. She was a lady who had arrived penniless in Edinburgh from County Donegal in search of her son, Uh, Burke murdered her at his home and placed her naked body under the straw of his own mattress. And when his house guests became suspicious later that evening, with Burke continually imploring them not to go near his room, they felt obliged to report him to the police. The body, once discovered, forced a quick confession, with Hare, his partner, turning King's evidence and implicating Burke, who was arrested and convicted. After visiting both men in their cells, the journalist and commentator Christopher North had described them for public consumption in Blackwood's magazine. Of Burke, he found, quote, nothing repulsive and not deficient in intellect. He was steeped in hypocrisy and deceit, his collected and guarded demeanour full of danger and guile, a cool, calculating, callous and unrelenting villain. And of Hare, he lamented, quote, the most brutal man ever subjected to my sight, and at first look seemingly an idiot, unquote. Uh, this was in Blackwood's magazine in March of 1829. The magazine originally called the Edinburgh Monthly Magazine was one of uh, the British miscellany, which was printed between 1817 and 1980. North was the pseudonym of John Wilson, who was the principal writer, but not an editor of the magazine. And it was set up as a foil to the Edinburgh Quarterly, which was a Whig publication. And although it was conservative, it was a vehicle for the works of Percy Shelley and Samuel Taylor Coleridge, of George Eliot, Joseph Conrad and John Buchan. They were all frequent uh, contributors, so not an unworthy uh, magazine. Anyway, after all this, the jury retired to consider its verdict at 8.30 on a Christmas morning, and they returned 50 minutes later 
to find Burke guilty of the third charge. The sentence of hanging with dissection was passed by Lord Justice Clark on the 29th of January 1829, and his charge to publicly anatomise the accused and enshrine the action into the social order of things bears repeating here. In his summing up, he said, quote, You now stand convicted by the verdict of a most respectable jury of your country of the atrocious murder charged against you in this indictment upon evidence which carried conviction to the mind of every man that heard it. In regard to your case, the only doubt that has come across my mind is whether in order to mark the sense that the court entertains of your offence and which the violated laws of the country entertain respecting it, your body should not be exhibited in chains in order to deter others from the like crimes in time coming. But taking into consideration that the public eye would be offended with so dismal an exhibition, I am disposed to agree that your sentence shall be put in execution in the usual way, but accompanied with the statutory attendant of the punishment of the crime of murder, namely, that your body should be publicly dissected and anatomised. And I trust that if it is ever customary to preserve skeletons, yours will be preserved, in order that posterity may keep in remembrance of your atrocious crimes, unquote. Burke's skeleton actually is in the Edinburgh University Medical School Museum, and his death death mask and the life mask of hair are in the adjacent surgeon's hall, along with a small wallet which is purported to have been made from the tan skin taken from the back of Burke's left, or his so-called sinister hand. One can read about it in uh, Roughhead's book, uh, Burke and Hare, Notable British Trials Series, um, which was uh, published in 1948. Burke was hanged at 8.15 in the morning on the 28th of January 1829, a day of torrential rain in front of a crowd estimated at between 20 and 25,000 in all. His dissection, although public, only admitted a few observers with up to 2,000 people protesting outside that they were unable to witness the anatomisation. It was reported that such was the level of interest and ire that between 30,000 and 40,000 of the public had filed past his mutilated remains, reportedly at about 60 persons per minute. In attendance, Knox's rival, Professor Alexander Monroe Tertius, dipped the quill of his pen in Burke's blood to flamboyantly write record of the dissection. Thus, quote, This is written with the blood of William Burke, who was hanged at Edinburgh. This blood was taken from his head, unquote. And after it was over, Monroe handed his body to a group of waiting phrenologists keen to feel the bumps on Burke's head and to ascertain the signs of his inherent evil. Tertius had the dubious distinction, actually, of performing the last mandated anatomisation in 1832 of an executed criminal, John Howison, the so-called Cramond murderer, who was convicted of killing an elderly woman, Marta Geddes, with a shovel. Tertius, unlike his father, Secundus, and grandfather Primus, was not highly regarded. One of Tertius' students was Charles Darwin, who 
studied medicine in Edinburgh between 1825 and 1827, but who had been so disgusted by Tertius frequently arriving to the lecture hall covered in blood that he gave up his medical studies. Darwin wrote his family, quote, I dislike Monroe and his lectures so much that I cannot speak with decency about them. He is so dirty in person and actions, unquote. And that comes from a letter to his sister, Carolyn, which was dated the 23rd of October, 1825. Um, Knox left no better impression, I must say, when he was visited by the American ornithologist John James Audubon, who was seeking subscribers to his monumental self-illustrated work, Birds of America. It's a fantastic book. Knox showed him around the Edinburgh Anatomy School, and Audubon, who was used to killing and dissecting the birds that he drew and who was a skilled taxidermist, was appalled at what he saw. He wrote that Knox was, quote, dressed in an overgown with bloody fingers. The sights were extremely disagreeable, many of them shocking beyond all I ever thought could be. I was glad to leave this charnel house and breathe again the salubrious atmosphere of the streets, unquote. That comes from Maria Audubon, his daughter's book, Audubon and His Journals, which was published in 1899. So it took a bit to shock Audubon, but the anatomists were able to do it. That Knox was involved was without doubt as he and his team had received all the bodies directly from Burke and Hare with no questions asked. Amazingly, Knox was never even delivered a subpoena to appear at Burke's trial, with Hare rendered immune from prosecution and with nothing of the bodily remains left for any sort of identification. It meant a trial of Burke and his wife as an accomplice only for Doherty's murder. But not everyone was pleased at how Burke and Hare were dispatched, and there were some who had even found their gruesome actions inspiring and almost a community service. Sir Walter Scott amongst them was convinced that Burke and Hare had cleansed the streets of their vermin and actually done society a favour in clearing out some of the great unwashed. Scott wrote triumphantly, quote, Our Irish importation have made a great discovery of economics, namely that a wretch who is not worth a farthing while alive becomes a valuable article when knocked on the head and carried to an anatomist. And acting on this principle, having cleared the streets of some of those miserable offcasts of society whom nobody missed because nobody wished to see them again, unquote. Extraordinary sort of thing. As for Knox, although the strongest suspicions of complicity had been laid, despite a public inquiry, the police felt obliged to leave him alone, free to dissect and to teach, and presumably to trade in the procurement and delivery of more bodies. The surgeon who had served at the Battle of Waterloo and become a fine anatomist, Knox's reputation would never be the same again. He would never live down the skipping chance... Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief, knocks the boy who buys the beef. That at least was re-quoted in The Resurrectionists from the New York Academy of Medicine. Throughout the trial and its aftermath, Knox sat in silence. Incensed by such injustice, protesters gathered outside his house and then marched in anger down Edinburgh's fashionable 
Princess Street holding his effigy, first throttling it and then hanging it and finally tearing it to pieces in a ritual, somewhat ironic uh, dissection. If you go there now, turning right off uh, Edinburgh's main street, Princess Street, it takes you past the North British Hotel into Nicholson Street where the Royal College of Surgeons is located. As for the Committee of Inquiry, all they could say was that Knox had been, quote, incautious, unquote, in his actions. It seems extraordinary treatment given that Knox had accepted the body of one mentally disabled boy, James Wilson, known as Daft Jamie, whom his students had even recognised when he was brought into the dissecting room. Knox had actually ordered the body hastily dissected so that the boy could not be identified. Involvement or no, the Royal College of Surgeons were quick to dispense with Knox, forcing his resignation by June 1831 from the museum he himself had proposed and founded. Frozen out, his lecture circuit dried up and he was unable to muster a paying class for the bodies he had purchased and which were left to rot undissected. Desperate, he departed for London in 1842 following the death of his wife, leaving his children with a nephew. But times remained unpleasant for Knox, and he couldn't find work as a surgeon from then on, tinkering around the fringes, contributing to medical journals and delivering the occasional lecture. He'd uh, made too many enemies, and now only made ends meet by writing books about fishing. Some of the evidence against Knox was overwhelming, and yet they let him be. One of his um, last of uh, Burke's victims, Mary Patterson, a prostitute, was well known, and she was considered so good-looking that Knox had preserved the body for three months and invited a painter to sketch her. After the trial, Knox worked as an anatomist at London's Brompton Hospital. He had a small medical practice in Hackney until his death in 1862. As for the others, MacDougall was attacked so frequently in the small villages and hamlets that she was rumoured to have left for Australia in order to obtain a respite peace. Margaret Hare, harassed in Glasgow, was ferried under police escort to Northern Ireland for peace and quiet. William Hare was released in February 1829, but on his travels in Scotland he was instantly recognised and he drew hostile crowds. What became of him is legend and surmise with one story having him being thrown into a lime pit and blinded and eking out his last days as a beggar on the streets of London. No one really knows. The public fascination, I think as much as its fear, became forever known in the lexicon as burking, burking mania, burkephobia and burkephobia. The other impetus for change was the infamous case of Stephen Pollard, who, which served as an exemplar of the dangers of nepotism in the appointment of London hospital consultants, but upon which it was also hoped that the egregious record of terrible deaths in the infirmaries might be improved. The argument for furthering the cause of dissection went that if only doctors and their students could obtain more access to corpses, then perhaps there would be better outcomes for their patients. Pollard was the personification of the 
dreadful fate that awaited some of the patients who needed surgery once admitted to a public hospital in an era where there was no anaesthesia and no concept of the genesis of serious post-operative infection. In his retrospective look at this period, the obstetrician Sir James Simpson, 1811 to 1870, in a review of the outcomes of his own cases published posthumously, candidly, albeit with a certain theatricality, believed that, quote, the man laid on an operating theatre in one of our surgical hospitals is exposed to more chances of death than the English soldier on the field of Waterloo, unquote. It comes from Sir James Simpson's Complete Works, which was published in 1871. Well, what of the case of Stephen Pollard gives an example. Pollard had come down to London for treatment of a bladder stone and was in the specialised hands of one of its consultant surgeons, Mr Bransby Cooper. That a case should go so wrong was in part a measure of the arrogance of Cooper, nephew of Guy's Hospital's greatest surgeon, Sir Astley Cooper, and it proved a double indignity publicly performed as an instructive case in front of a group of Cooper's peers, and it became a cause celeb for Walkley and his Lancet magazine. In an editorial, Walkley drew attention to the obvious negligence of the case and, sued by Cooper, acted as his own defence counsel in a notorious libel case, which was front-page news. Pollard, a farmer, was 53 years of age with six children who had come down from Lewes in Sussex for what he thought was the simple operation of cutting stone, confident that his surgery was about to be done by the the nevy, the nephew of Sir Astley. The history of these stones themselves is interesting since they were commonplace in Georgian England, but are relatively infrequent today. The surgeons had developed a wide and inventive variety of tools and instruments to extract them without anaesthesia and with astonishing speed. The patient strapped and bound to the operating table with his legs up for a perineal cut. There's a number of pictures of these kinds of graphic drawings which are pretty frightening. In those days, the combination of speed and success would have been most prized and a surgeon based his reputation on both. In Pollard's case, however, Cooper spent an hour repeatedly digging around from below in the area between Pollard's bladder and rectum, unable to locate the stone. Part of Cooper's problem also stemmed from his performance, which was in front of a sizable audience, perhaps up to 200 people, and each member witnessing him becoming increasingly frustrated with the progress of the surgery. It's recorded, for example, that at one point Cooper, in exasperation, had proclaimed that the depth of Pollard's perineum, that's the space from the skin around the anus and scrotum to the bladder, was abnormally large, and he then spent considerable time comparing the size of his own hand with that of others in the audience, whilst poor Pollard lay screaming and exhausted in a guttered pool of his own blood. At long last, Cooper retrieved the stone, holding it aloft in what some described later as some triumph, and then he sent Pollard back to his bed in agony, covered in blood. Pollard died the next day, presumably from blood loss and exhaustion. The post-mortem, performed later by Dr Thomas Hodgkin, revealed a normal-shaped perineum with an average thickness and extensive bruising, 
in the region of the bladder base, along with a severe injury to the rectum. Now, this horror alone might not normally have triggered any kind of reaction at all. Patients died every day from operations that were poorly performed, always simply in the absence of supportive facilities, larger surgeries would have proven too much for them to withstand. The business of retrieving urinary stones, or calculi as they're called, had an age-old tradition with a series of small scopes and scoops and graspers and tine-like crushers and baskets, all designed to ensnare them in their hidden locations. There were many surgeons in London with a solid enough reputation for adeptly removing the stone. The instrument, by the way, which is inserted into the bladder to locate the position of the stone is called a sound because of the light noise that it makes when it taps against a hard calculus. Walkley's open report on March the 29th, 1828, in The Lancet on how this operation had been botched, claimed negligent incompetence on behalf of Bransby uh, in an operation normally taking minutes, but which took a full hour, and with five of Sir Astley Cooper's relatives working in senior positions at the hospital, there was a second claim that this negligence was a by-product of Astley's nepotism. Bransby's libel suit against Walkley was then heard at the Queen's bench before Lord Tenterton, with Walkley in arrogant fashion conducting his own defence, although he received some private assistance and tuition about how to comport himself from the Lord Chancellor, Henry Brougham. Walkley, with the assistance of Henry Brougham and Mr Fitzroy Kelly, was pitted against one of the foremost barristers in Sir James Scarlet, afterwards Lord Abingdon, with the assistance of Mr F. Pollock, who later became Chief Baron Pollock. There's an excellent rendition of this in Esquire Spriggs' The Life and Times of Thomas Walkley, which was published in 1899, but which is available um, through specialist uh, bookstores. After two hours of deliberation, although the jury ruled in Cooper's favour, they offered him only £100, a payment which was defrayed by Walkley through public subscription. It was just enough to cover his legal expenses and still leave a small sum of money for Pollard's widow. During the case, Walkley used a scale model of a child along with a human pelvis and a range of instruments explaining the nature of Cooper's incision. At a meeting at the Freemasons' Tavern one week after the verdict, there was almost unanimous support in paying Walkley's expenses as subscriptions, and they raised £295.10 to Mr Cooper's costs, the £100 for damages, and £12, seven shillings and ninepence for the sheriff's so-called poundage costs, which are involved in bringing anyone to trial. As the total costs were attained, the subscription book was closed, and it left two to three small subscriptions which the donors did not want returned, and which were then forwarded on to Pollard's widow. She might have received maybe one or two pounds. Afterwards, Walkley, for his trouble, was expelled from the learned societies and was unable to set foot in several metropolitan hospitals. He later was elected the MP for Finsbury until his retirement in 1852, and he championed universal suffrage and the abolition of slavery. Walkley's Lancet became the social instrument for 
venting concerns about almost everything. Its pages were used for substantial reforms of the health system, railing against a range of ills, including the poor state of medical education, the rise of nepotism within the infirmaries and their boards, the need for city coroners to be practising physicians, the advocacy of a registry of all medical doctors later becoming the General Medical Council, and even as a platform for recommendations on the quality of food and drink within the city. But the impact on the Pollard family and on others to come soon after him was minimal. Although the issue of medical malpractice appeared commonly in the editorials of the journal, there were many other complaints which diluted any substantial, uh, what we might call, Pollard effect. The impetus for legislation which uh, reformed the conduct of dissection in the United States was similar to that in the United Kingdom, even if there was a history of a catalogue of scandals that was uniquely American. Facing the same dilemmas as their English counterparts in 1790, Congress passed, quote, an act for uh, for the punishment of certain crimes, unquote, which left federal judges with the discretion to add anatomization to a death sentence for murder either committed at sea or in a military garrison, so very similar to English law. And such a particular punishment was subsequently extended to the crime of arson and even to burglary, uh, reversing in the eyes of some who previously had been considered distinctly lenient sentences. Following Britain's lead in the new legislation in New York, New Jersey's legislature around this time also passed a similar act to add anatomization onto a conviction for murder. So this was the normal transatlantic trend. But these statutory manoeuvres would not be sufficient for the dissector's needs. With the intermittent evidence of body parts washing up on the shores of New York's East River, there was comparatively little to quash the public fear of the ongoing clandestine trade in corpses. Regional commutations of sentences for burglary from execution to a mere custodial period were felt to undermine the letter of the law and forced many medical students in New York to seek their training once more in Paris where there was much greater access to bodies. But legislating for the problem of America's equivalent of the resurrectionists who would dub the sack-em-up men in the United States was in some ways a more complicated matter than the dilemma facing Warburton back in England. In America, there were individual states' rights and anatomy acts and bills were non-uniform across the country, reflecting the continuous battle between the federal and state legislatures. In the United States, tales of scandal involving the illicit procurement of corpses for the medical schools abounded from Pennsylvania to New York with most of the complicit medical doctors openly caught shipping bodies in barrels to their anatomy laboratories. These uh, groups were most active during the colder months between November and uh, March. There's an excellent book on this by Edward Halperin called The Poor, the Black and the Marginalised as the Source of Cadavers in uh, United States Anatomical Education. Uh, It's a long article, rather, in Clinical uh, Anatomy of 2007.
But just as in England, there still were not enough corpses available through legal means, even when in desperation, the American statutes had extended their nets to allow dissection uh, of uh, those who had committed suicide, some killed in duels, horse thieves, and inmates dying in prison. Things came to a head when the body of Senator John Scott Harrison, the son of the ninth United States President, William Henry Harrison, and also the father of the 23rd US President, Benjamin Harrison, was shockingly discovered in the dissecting room at the Ohio Medical College in Cincinnati. The body stolen from the family mausoleum was tragically found by the senator's son and grandson during an inspection of the school. It was only fortuitous since it was just as they were about to leave that it was dragged up from the cellar with a rope around its neck. Both Senator Harrison's relatives insisted on a tour of the college after having received word that the body of a family friend, a William Devon, had been stolen from its grave and transported to the medical school. Unable to find Devon's body after a search as they were about to leave, they were both shocked as they watched Senator Harrison's body being hoisted up the room uh, on a hook. The matter was extensively reported in the Cincinnati Daily Gazette, but also made its way to the front pages of the New York Times on May the 31st, 1878. As for Devon's body, it was ultimately found in a brine barrel at the medical college in Ann Arbor, Michigan, with its anatomy demonstrator, Dr William J. Herdman, demanding $30 reimbursement for release of the body, as those were the costs that he had incurred for its procurement. Uh, there's a very good article on this uh, written by Edwards, uh, by uh, Lyndon Edwards, the famous Harrison case and its repercussions in the Bulletin of the History of Medicine, an old article from 1957. That any man of privilege and position could be trundled off from the most respectable cemetery for dissection was intolerable, and it caused public outrage. Even the rich, it seemed, were not immune to this type of skullduggery, although it's likely that Harrison was simply caught up in the lucrative and active trade of body shipment rather than being specifically targeted. But in the prosecution of this case, the members of the medical faculty of Ohio were completely open in their grand jury testimony about their involvement in a body trade for dissection, which tended to target the graves of paupers from whom all marks of identification were typically removed. From there it transpired that bodies once procured would best be transported in pickle barrels to fictitious out-of-state addresses. The double or sometimes triple coffining by the wealthy often didn't put off the most determined resurrectionist, and those efforts provided little benefit over a common pit burial, even when it was advertised that coffins could be made theft-proof. The ingenuity of secure clamping coffin designs and blocking mort safes fueled an entire patent security industry and it forced those less well-off to store their dead relatives in what were called death houses. And for the services, armed sentries were paid and given free liquor to guard graves until sufficient time had elapsed that the bodies inside would be so putrefied as to be useless for the surgeons. There was even one alternative, the coffin torpedo, 
marketed out of Columbus, Ohio, and patented by a local artist, Philip K. Clover, in 1878, and the device was supposed to detonate a small explosive if the coffin was interfered with. In the UK, the shocking Burke and Hare murders were the catalyst for the introduction to Parliament of Warburton's Bill on the 5th of May 1829, and the aims of licensing the places and people who could conduct dissections on corpses, regulating the movement of cadavers, legalising the process of body bequest, and laying down clear penalties for the disinterment of bodies. With much controversy, the bill spelled out the mechanism whereby the bodies of those dying in prisons, hospitals and workhouses might be handed over within 48 hours of their death in the event that they were left unclaimed. Unsurprisingly, there was considerable disquiet over this matter and on its first reading, the bill was defeated by 40 votes to 8. As the bill did not apply to Ireland, there were further concerns that the illicit trade in bodies from Ireland might actually increase. In that first reading, both the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Howley, and the Duke of Wellington voted against the bill after its second reading in the Commons when it reached the House of Lords on the 5th of June 1829. So it failed. All around in its first incarnation, the bill had caused much consternation, but not principally for its intent to use the unclaimed bodies of the indigent. People weren't concerned about that. Almost every interested party was aggrieved. The College of Surgeons was upset, petitioning against the bill because it proposed commissioners who were not surgeons and who would control the flow of bodies. The directors of the private schools of anatomy were also against it, as they had a fear that their supply of bodies would dry up. And Walkley and the Lancet were equally unhappy, and they were bothered that no one could effectively dissect bodies outside of approved London medical schools but none in their vociferous objections ever expressed concerns about the source of bodies that the new proposed act demanded from the ranks of the lower classes. Private correspondence between Jeremy Bentham, for example, the father of utilitarianism, and the Prime Minister at the time, Sir Robert Peel, on potentially using the bodies of the poor for dissection, had actually commenced as early as 1826. The Anatomic Society was set up by surgeons John Abernethy, Charles Bell, Everett Home, Benjamin Brodie, Sir Astley Cooper. They'd even begun agitating parliamentary members on this matter about getting bodies from the indigent as early as 1810. Between 1828 and the enactment of the Anatomy Act four years later, several further extraordinary events transpired. Firstly, on June the 26th, 1830, King George IV died of a gastric hemorrhage and Parliament was dissolved. The election of Earl Grey as the Whig Prime Minister in November put pay to the Act, but again events forced a legislative urgency. London was suddenly gripped with her own Birking murders, the work of two men known colloquially as Bishop and Williams. John Bishop and Thomas Williams were local London lads from Bethnal Green and Shoreditch, and they worked together in a gang of resurrectionists with a Covent Garden porter, a fellow called Michael Shields, an unemployed butcher, James May, and a seasoned resurrectionist, Jack Stirabout, also known as Black-Eyed Jack. 
Now, unlike Burke or Hare, Bishop and Williams were an established part of London's underworld, and they'd both cut their teeth robbing graves. By the time Bishop had been caught, he confessed to stealing upwards of a thousand corpses, which he delivered to King's College, St Bartholomew's Hospital and Guy's Hospital. Their story was less lurid, however, than that of their Edinburgh counterparts, and their planning more random in the killing of three of London's poor. Their modus operandi was more hastily constructed, drugging each of their victims with laudanum, dropped into whisky and followed by drowning. Not content with just delivery of the bodies, their desire for money forced them to extract the teeth from a young 14-year-old Italian boy, Carlo Ferrari, and the fresh bleeding from the mouth of the corpse alerted the suspicion of the staff in reception at King's College. On reception of the body, the demonstrator of anatomy at King's College, a Mr Partridge, used the excuse that he wished to change a £50 note, which was the price of the body being set by Bishop and Williams, at nine guineas. Partridge then called the police, and the two men also confessed to the murder of Francis Pigburn, and a man simply known as Cunningham. The redistribution of teeth, by the way, was a very lucrative trade, and most dentists in London relied on a clandestine supply of cadaveric teeth which were made into dentures for the wealthy upper class. Before porcelain became fashionable in the mid-19th century, teeth were made from ivory, but many were retrieved from those who were slain on the battlefields of the Peninsula War between 1808 to 1814, and those were known, in fact, as Waterloo teeth. Bishop and Williams were speedily brought to justice and both were hanged on the 5th of December, 1831. But with this latest atrocity, there was such an hysteria that false rumours abounded of London's own Birking murders, numbering in the hundreds. As a consequence of all these events, there was for Warburton an even greater sense of urgency in reintroducing the bill to Parliament, even with, if, with all its amendments, the public were largely oblivious to the debate around who dissections were really intended for. Benthamism, at its worst, enshrined in the proposed Act the view that the poor were a drain on society, that in essence got nothing from them in return. If the impecunious cared anything for their dead, the Benthamites argued, then they would have already mobilised and protested against the proposed legislation. And if more proof were needed of the rightness of the new laws, it could be found in the silence and the passivity of the masses. This was their argument. In a spirited twist of irony, the Leadenhall market butchers submitted a petition to the Lord Mayor of London that only the rich should be considered for dissection. Quote, all high dignitaries of the church and all the judges of the land and all the generals and colonels commanding regiments, all the admirals and captains in commission should dedicate their bodies after death. That was reprinted in the Carlisle's Lion, 1829 to 1830. The butchers had done so after Warburton's first reading of the bill had failed and whilst he was gearing up for his second submission to the House of Commons. It had mirrored private remarks by Henry Hunt, a vocal opponent of the bill, 
who had brazenly called for the dissection of kings rather than shelling out the cost for their state funerals. Hunt also provocatively called for the anatomization of hereditary peers. Not bad. Deflated, Warburton would not be deterred even when his mentor Bentham died in June of 1832. By the time of its second reading, Warburton had learned the pitfalls of arguing controversial bills. He not only watered down many of the bill's contentious elements, removing any allusion to the dissection of murderers, for example, but he reintroduced the bill after midnight to an exhausted, empty house with only a handful opposing. It gained royal assent on the 1st of August, 1832. An act for regulating the schools of anatomy. Warburton had also removed the word dissection throughout the second bill and replaced it with the far more sanitised term anatomical examination. That bill was only opposed by four MPs, which included Henry, the orator, Hunt, as he was called, who was a radical for Preston, Sir Richard Vivian, who was a Tory at Bristol, Michael Sadler, a Tory from Leeds, and Colonel Charles Sibthorpe, a Tory from Lincoln. By the time the House divided for consideration of the bill's amendments, Hunt was often the sole opponent, but it was passed in the House of Lords on July the 19th, 1832. In America, there had been similar fights for cadavers, but compared with England, there were rather variable legislative incentives and urgency amongst the states. Ohio, for example, had rapidly responded to the Harrison incident passing its bill in 1878, with neighbouring Indiana quickly following. Ohio was rocked by a second scandalous case where, quote, a well-known citizen of Cleveland was buried on a Monday and turned up in a pickle tank at the Cleveland Homeopathic Medical College on Tuesday. That was reported in the New York Times on August the 16th, 1878. Given the differences in constituency structure in the states, there were various motivations around the country to promote individual anatomy acts. Massachusetts had already passed its own anatomy act in 1831, just before Warburton's bill. But in nearby New York, the hue and cry from even tabling what became known as the Bone Bill in 1854, promising to, quote, act to promote medical science and protect burial grounds, unquote, was only quelled by those who argued that it was designed to assuage the populace regarding the sanctity of their sepulchres. As it was, the Bone Bill proved arduous and was barely passed with only a single vote more than the required two-thirds majority, indicative of the fact that in other areas the state legislation, uh, legislation was a barometer of the fresh national political dynamics. In New York, for example, the middle class had coalesced around the Whig Party, which was promoting the bill to shift dissection onto those bodies which were unclaimed, much like Britain. The Whigs were led by Daniel Webster and Henry Clay, who were strong economic protectionists, patterning themselves as the moral arbiters of society. 
By the late 1850s, the party had imploded over its position on maintaining slave-holding areas and its political base shifted to the new Republicans led by Abram Lincoln. New York was divided along party lines with most of its poor and Irish and German immigrants siding with the Democrats who were not interested in pushing for laws which would have assisted the surgeons. The arguments in favour were both theoretical and practical, with its exponents promising to restore the integrity of the doctors and subdue the ire of menacing flash mobs which had intermittently gathered around the city near her hospitals whenever gangs roamed close to the church graveyards. The Democratic governor, Horatio Seymour, finally signed the Bone Bill into law on the 3rd of April 1854, but the commerce in bodies trickled on. Rioting mobs had recently attacked other schools, resulting in a pressure to enshrine some types of legislation that emulated Warburton's lead. Both the College of Philadelphia and the Yale Medical Department, for example, had been attacked by protesters about dissection of cadavers that had been handed over by the Sackamup men. By and large, like England, the new state laws ensured that those least protected in society now became the most vulnerable to the dissecting knife, with the ultimate effect of shifting the pool of available bodies from convicted criminals to the broad swathe of slaves, Indian, prisoners of war, prostitutes and paupers. Other states would soon toe the line, so that by the turn of the 20th century there was a fairly brisk movement of unclaimed cadavers across the nation. But the law lumbered along more slowly and less impulsively than it did in England, the public not subjected to any real Birking equivalency. Birking-style cases in the United States were very isolated. In one such case, prosecuted in 1886 in Maryland, an assistant janitor, Anderson Perry, from the University of Maryland School of Medicine, had engaged two men, a John Ross and Albert Hawkins, to kill 60-year-old Emily Brown for the purpose of sale of the body to the medical school. So these rare cases, that trial reported that Ross had hit Brown over the head with a brick, with Hawkins stabbing her and later accusing Perry of masterminding the plan. Perry, who had been working at the Baltimore school for nine years, became remorseful on receiving the bloodied body of Brown in a sack along with $15, and he confessed the, the uh, plan and the whole story to the uh, chief anatomist. Even as the idiosyncratic nature of the state laws created their own unique conditions, there were no prominent American anatomists who were implicated in body snatching or who suffered the ruination of their careers in quite the same way as occurred with Robert Knox. The peculiarities of the American body trade, however, had their origins in the antebellum period. They were carried over and after the end of the Civil War. The traffic in African-American bodies was brisk with gangs openly trawling not only funeral homes and the docks but also contracting slave owners for cadaver shipment. Both Mississippi and North Carolina specifically exempted the dissection of the bodies of Confederate soldiers or their wives for that matter 
and the North Carolinians specified that no white person's body could ever be sent to a black medical college. Dissection of cadavers was illegal in Virginia until 1884, although the movement of black bodies through Richmond was permitted by arrangement of the anatomy professors of Charlottesville up until the commencement of the Civil War. After the end of the conflict, however, there was a robust trade of southern bodies by Confederate sympathisers who sent them by rail to the north, a process which continued well into the 1890s. The University of New England labelled barrels containing southern bodies as turpentine, initially sending them to local hardware stores as a subterfuge. So there were these terrible, convoluted stories. But just as in England, even in the face of new laws which prohibited resurrectionists, many were never prosecuted. In the state of Vermont, for example, only seven indictments were made for grave robbing in the 20 years after 1840, with only two convictions. By 1900, most of the legal processes in the North had been established and the landscape became fairly fixed. In the South, the difficulties in reconstruction affected all legislation and there was no uniformity in its anatomy bills. Defenceless blacks still trawled from amongst the prison population for the medical school's annual quota of bodies. Absolutely ghastly. But with the new laws, once the schools and universities had an unfettered access to so many unclaimed bodies, the street price of the cadaver fell precipitously and the grave robbers were gradually squeezed out of business. Back in England, once enacted, the power of the Anatomy Act was in its detail, particularly in its Clause 7, the authority to hand over a body for dissection with a certified death cause and without objection. Clause 12 organised the movement of bodies in a recognised coffin or shell, and Clause 2 had set up registering inspectors of anatomy and a formal inspectorate that could provide national data on body movement. Clause 16 repealed the old Murder Act, directing the dissection of the bodies of murderers. The first inspector, Dr James Somerville, 1799-1847, reported to the next Select Committee on Medical Education in 1834, stating that exhumation of bodies had stopped in England and Wales, that the prices of bodies were lower and that the bodies for dissection were fresher. The idea, however, that the trade of the resurrectionists disappeared overnight, I think, is somewhat mythical. They remained a constant social dread, and the inspectorate even threatened local communities with the prospect that the resurrectionists would return if ordinary people would not comply with handing over their dead. Many London hospitals offered parishes priority admission for their poor, saving them the cost of funerals and burials, but with the expectation that they would, upon death, be dissection material. Isolated pockets of resurrection work persisted, but were effectively squeezed out of the market to be replaced by the masters of the workhouses bartering their workers' bodies to the medical schools until this too was outlawed in 1844 as part of the so-called Poor Law Amendment. Even then, prosecutions to enforce this law, stopping worker exploitation, were few and far between, as one case Rex versus Alfred Feist in 1858 
another Henry Deersley and Thomas Bell. Um, so there are some Crown cases on this, uh, on this particular matter. There were many cases, however, of subterfuge by Somerville, with the major London hospitals unhappy with how he was distributing the available bodies. He eventually lost his job in 1842 with the threat of a parliamentary inquiry, which never really got underway. He resigned uh, before that could happen. Communities, too, gradually got wind of the legislation and there were public protests in many villages, notable demonstrations in Leeds and Manchester. The reappearance of cholera in Paisley just after the Act was made law saw that city cutting special burial grounds, which the villagers were sure were being raided for the work of the anatomists, and there was a great fear that epidemic diseases would usher in a new era of burking. Subsequently, many methods were used to circumvent components of the Act. There were, for example, no there was, for example, no provision for the free trade of body parts, none of which needed to be registered by the inspectorate. And there were also records of complicity with workhouses to permit, uh, on selected occasions, the handing over of bodies for a quick minimal dissection that would afterwards see them return for burial with the family of the deceased, none the wiser, usually a few hours later. So you could get a quick dissection and then sew it back up and hand it back to the family. Uh, Helen MacDonald writes about this in Procuring Bodies, the English Anatomy Inspectorate, 1842 to 1858, which is in Medical History, a very interesting article. The Act was built around the ignorance of the populace, and for its implementation, the inspectors had all agreed to a public silence concerning its details. According to the Home Secretary, Sir James Graham, quote, the silence with which the Act had been carried into execution, was the best proof of success, unquote. An extraordinary comment. The behaviour of officials in the immediate period after the Act also left much to be desired, both in its enforcement and by their manipulations. In failing to legislate against body separation, for example, the Act had left considerable room for manoeuvre. In one recorded exchange in 1868, a surgeon, Mr Bradford, approached the Chief Inspector of England and Wales, Mr Charles Hawkins, asking him the going rate for an upper extremity. And even the Royal College of Surgeons at one time had petitioned Somerville's replacement Inspector, John Rutherford Alcock, to, quote, send them two heads, unquote. But if the people in the street were unhappy, so too were the anatomists. Despite corruption at the very top of the inspectorate, even though the resurrectionists had been forced off the street, most in the College of Surgeons felt in the decade after passage of the Act that little had been achieved. It was widely believed that there had been no more bodies forthcoming than there would have been if the resurrectionists had been left alone. This was, however, only the perception of the early days of the inspectorate. First Anatomy Inspector for Scotland, David Craigie, 1793 to 1866, was fired also for incompetence in 1836. So once, however, its registry and certificates were implemented, the resurrectionists ultimately disappeared from the marketplace, even if there were still fights over the equitable distribution of bodies between London 
and the provinces. The returns and registers of bodies at the Public Record Office show that in the first hundred years after the Anatomy Act, nearly 57,000 bodies were dissected in London's anatomy schools alone. And that's according to Ruth Richardson. There was an influx during the 20th century uh, wars of bodies from the mental asylums, but still almost all of those dissected came from the ranks of the poor. Despite the new law, however, and for all their utilitarian protestations, there was a received public cynicism towards those politicians like Warburton, who had proposed the legislation, perhaps with the best of intentions, but who, in arguing his concerns for the poor, had just consigned them to the dust heap of dissection. Even if, as Richard Altick has surmised that, quote, the humbly-born Englishman in the 19th century had a mind of his own, a stubborn will, and a strong sense of his own dignity, unquote. The harsh reality was that the new poor laws which followed the Act only two years later were designed to push people back to work and to remove the burden on government to support the impoverished altogether. That uh, quote comes from Richard Altick's The English Common Reader, which was published in 1957. The British public may not have been passive, but they were certainly captive, and for all its purported value, there was nothing in the Act to ameliorate the horrendous mortality in the infirmary wards. In the arguments by parliamentarians in favour of the legislation, any promises that additional dissection by doctors would somehow improve their quality seemed more a remote aspiration than a tangible benefit. And in truth, no amount of entreaties by its advocates that dissection would satisfy the intellectual curiosity of scientific men could cover the fact that anatomization of the underprivileged, powerless and the illiterate had just been firmly enacted into law.